and welcome back to From My Mom's Basement, the podcast recorded directly from my mom's basement. I'm your host, David Chamberlain, and this is episode 19 of the podcast, entitled The Cripple King, written by myself. Thank you all for listening. If you ever think you're ugly, just know there are certain circles out there that might consider you to be a real, true reincarnation of Helen of Troy. Now, whether or not you want to run in these circles, some of which are no doubt filled with sewer rat-looking dudes, is up to you. But just know that like pain, there are varying degrees of ugliness, degrees that go all the way down to places you wouldn't believe. There's always someone uglier. Always. Unlike happiness and beauty, which seem to plateau right around the getting married level or Margot Robbie level, respectively, pain and ugliness keep on going down, it seems, straight into a bleak eternity. I mean, there are some suckers out there who are so ugly you might not be able to identify them as human, like God forgot what kind of animal he was making halfway through their gestation. There are some real sorry inbred-looking guys out there, and then there are people who make those guys look handsome. So it is with pain. You've heard of rock bottom, sure, but this is a made-up, phony place. If there really were a rock bottom, an endpoint where all misery and woe could no longer get any worse, we'd be a pretty comfortable people. No, most people I know that are in real pain have no rock bottom to hit. They're free-falling through a black hole. They're on the front seat of a jet-propelled roller coaster that's shooting straight down through the center of the earth, and rock bottom was a cute sign they saw as they boarded the coaster. There is no rock bottom. There is only white knuckling and free-falling with your eyelids ripped open and your lips flapping in the wind as you rocket down towards an all-engulfing maw of blackness. There is no true limit to pain, only varying degrees of it. One day, you might become acquainted with some downright spine-tingling depression, the kind that makes your stomach turn heavy and dark like a water-soaked t-shirt and believe that to be the worst sensation ever felt on earth. Only to receive a phone call saying that both your parents just died in a ritualistic double suicide. And now suddenly you might think that that measly depression doesn't look so bad anymore. There is no end to the extent of pain. You can explore its vast reaches for miles. Pain is an unending cave system that stretches and worms its way towards damnation like a sprawling, tentacle-like root system of horror and woe. And the worst part is, you can't know there is worse pain out there until you explore it yourself. Real deal, dust bowl, middle ages, nothing to eat, infants are dying, the enemy is at the gates, people are killing each other type pain, is only fully realized when experienced. Like skydiving or having sex, it can be explained to you in fancy metaphors and described to you in intricate graphic detail, or even shown to you on big old movie screens with ear-piercing sound design and beautiful people, but unless you've actually experienced it, you really don't know anything about it. That's the trouble with pain. It's a relative, selfish emotion. It's a real dastardly thing, pain. Pain and ugliness. And no one knew of the dastardly ways of pain and ugliness better than the cripple king Montego IV of Onks. Now, before we go any further, I should tell you that this king is totally made up, and so is the land of Onks. These are little contrivances born out of the complex chambers of my wonderful genius imagination. And, by the way, the land is pronounced Onks, 
O-N-X, not Ankh, like the famous Egyptian totem. Okay, so Montego IV was the product of a long, convoluted royal family tree that more closely resembled long strings of ivy than the widening branches of a tree. The inbreeding royals of Ankhs didn't seem to care that each of their subsequent generations were becoming more and more demented with each new addition to the family. As their ugly progeny progressed, the gaps between their eyes broadened, their noses lengthened and jutted, their chins dissolved into their necks, and their foreheads bloomed into mushroom-like growths that sprouted thin, wispy orange hair. The royal line finally culminated in its most terrible iteration with little Montego IV. He kind of took the cake for being the ugliest Montegan ever produced, a title that his relatives were more than happy to relinquish to him. Montego IV himself was never able to supply his house with an heir. The noble and ugly house of Montego ended abruptly with him. There is some serious debate about why this was. Some historians believe that because of his inbreeding progenitors, Montego IV was rendered infertile, a likely consequence for generations of incest. However, there is another school of Anxist scholars who believe that it was simply because of Montego IV's burn-victim-like hideousness that he was never able to produce a child. Women of his kingdom gave him a wide berth, skirting around him slowly and cautiously like a ship captain avoiding a rocky outcropping. He never had a single female courtesan. Even his chambermaids were men, chamber butlers. It's for this reason that many historians believe Montego IV's kingly bed remained empty of any intimacy for his entire life. I am simply trying to tell you that Montego IV wasn't just your run-of-the-mill, buck-toothed, pimple-faced, bug-eyed, beak-nosed kind of ugly. Nor was he the King Richard III kind of ugly, the kind where he possessed an inconvenient yet highly trademarkable deformity. Montego IV was the kind of ugly that made you stop and shake your head and apologize to God for ever being ungrateful. Long before his accession to the throne of Ankhs, Montego IV was a captain in the Anxian military and was known simply as Captain Montego, or colloquially as the Putrid Captain. He headed much of his father's, Montego III's, military campaigns on the northern edges of Ankhs, in a realm known as Northland. He had a pretty good military record, too, beating the bad people of the north in a decisive victory at the Battle of Blood Mountain thereby settling the War of the Bad People of the North. Many soldiers gave accounts of this famous battle, saying that the enemy fled in the face of the putrid captain, turning on their heels and sprinting in the opposite direction. The soldiers said this phenomenon was not due to Captain Montego's expert fighting capabilities or uncompromising courage in the face of death, but because the enemy, upon seeing his face, thought Captain Montego was some denizen of hell recruited by the Anxian military, ready to pour out the devil's wrath onto the battlefield. Some northerns were even remembered screaming, Demon! There's a demon amongst them! Years after the War of the Bad People of the North, King Montego III, the venerable, scrupulous, and beloved, passed away, leaving all the lands, fiefs, and commonwealths of Anx to his eldest son, Montego IV, a.k.a. the Cripple King. Generally, the people of Ankhs were pretty PO'd about this transition. The trade didn't seem equitable. It was kind of like handing in your modest but very reliable Honda 
for some kind of heavily used rust bucket made by an illegitimate manufacturer from Soviet Russia. The people could trust Montego III. No matter how many miles were on the odometer, they knew he could get them where they needed to go. But that wasn't the case for his offspring. Montego IV was horrifying to look upon, sure, but that wasn't the only grievance that could be brought against him. If you were to pop open the hood and take a look at his internal mechanics, you'd probably find a few semi-important components were missing. I'm just saying that maybe he wasn't running at optimum RPMs. Maybe if he had a couple wires replaced and his oil changed and his transmission tuned up, he'd be up to snuff with the rest of us, his engine purring like a contented kitten. Unfortunately, he never got such mechanical attention. During his reign, Montego III held the connotation of being a humble badass, a duality that, I'm not sure if you know this, is really hard to pull off. Meanwhile, our Montego the Cripple wasn't really thought of as anything more than Montego III's botched-era parent, an ineffectual, defective runt that should be sequestered in the mildewy dungeons of Castle Montego and never set free. Before his accession, Montego IV's coronation day was, to the people of Ankhs, a distant nightmare brooding on the horizon, an impending disaster that they couldn't avoid or circumvent. No one really liked to think of the day when the pustule-ridden freak would slide his malformed keister onto the golden throne of Onks. The mere thought of it gave people chills, made them shudder as though they just slurped down some cherry-flavored cough syrup without a chaser. The great barons of Onks were known to wake up in their beds screaming, their old hearts having been almost arrested by a terrible dream in which the nightmarish coronation day had finally arrived. Well, the nightmarish day came and went, and the Cripple King became the sole ruler of Onks, presiding over eight different fiefdoms, all of which were managed by barons who despised the Cripple King equally. On what grounds did these barons despise the poor king? I can tell you he wasn't hated for political reasons. In fact, the Cripple King proved himself to be surprisingly competent in exercising dominion over a polity that denigrated him. He was a real trooper. He had to wake up every morning with the mindset of a middle school substitute teacher, walking out into the world knowing that the people he ruled over would like nothing more than to humiliate and abuse him. No, the barons and smaller lords and peasantry of Onks hated the Cripple King for one reason and one reason only. He was ugly. Really, the only thing that kept the more powerful barons from banding together and ousting the Cripple King from his royal position was his undeniable competency. No one, not even the most fervent Cripple King hater, could deny his high aptitude for performing kingly responsibilities. The kingdom of Onks really flourished under Montego IV. There was an economic explosion, a stark decrease in crime and poverty, and an infrastructure expansion not seen since the ancient days of the kingdom. Because of these unexpected benefits of Montego IV's rule, the body politic kind of let the Cripple King continue running things without overthrowing him. But, like members of a rival political party, it was hard for the people to swallow any of the king's successes, and they watched him with their eyes peeled, ready to usurp him the moment he showed the slightest inadequacy. It wouldn't be hard to eradicate the House of Montego either, there being only one surviving member of the noble lineage a single batch of poison or paid-off guard or loosened stare in the castle aviary could topple the whole Montegan regime toot-sweet, 
leaving the barons to vacuum up the remaining pieces of the broken empire. The kingdom's political dynamic was a precarious one, teetering, wobbling, tap-dancing on the edge of a scary precipice. At any moment, the flourishing kingdom could lose its footing and the symbiotic fiefdoms of Ankhs could transform into warring factions, ending the reign of Montego IV and tearing the peaceful land of Ankhs to bloody smithereens. And so you might well imagine the terror the king felt the day the wyvern arrived. He was eating breakfast alone in his dining chambers, the king. Each one of his crunchy bites echoed into the dimly lit vastness that surrounded him, ping-ponging off the cyclopean stone walls and finally ricocheting to a sad silence. The drafty chambers of Castle Montego had all of the stereotypical architectural characteristics of any great medieval fortress or readout, namely that it was big, dark, made from giant grayish stone, and lit by little torches hung in sconces on the walls. Montego's dining hall was no exception. It was essentially a long rectangular box made of stone with an absurdly large wooden table running down its center. And although this dining table was close to half the length of an American football field, there was ever only one chair sitting before it, the Cripple Kings. The hall was drafty, and the walls stunk of the thousands of meals that had been presented within them throughout the long history of Castle Montego. The floors were often wet with some unidentifiable dark liquid, and the windows in the hall, which were nothing more than vertical slits incised in the stone, only introduced a strong easterly wind into the chamber, making the cold hall still colder. The cripple king sat at the very head of his grand feasting table, with the pathetic posture of a preteen sitting alone at a school dance. His back was hunched, his chin dangled so low it nearly rested against the table, and his shoulders were brought in tight towards his chest. On his bald, blistering, lesioned head rested the crown of onks, the same ugly, dented piece of brass every Montegan king had worn since the dawn of time. Between bites of food, the king adjusted his crown, pulling out thin wisps of hair and smoothing over pus nodules that had gotten caught against its sharp metal. It was hard enough being mind-bogglingly ugly, but Montego IV's hideousness also brought serious health issues and physical pain, a real double whammy of misfortune. On the table before him lay a spread of bizarre, supposed breakfast delicacies, most of which were paired with some variation of buttered toast. Toast with jam, toast with marmalade, toast with jelly, toast with cinnamon sugar, toast with peanut butter, etc., etc. The baker's pantry in the castle had recently been the victim of some seasonal flooding, and as a result, the bakers were trying to evacuate their bread stores before any baked goods were lost to the flood water. Unfortunately, perhaps due to the sudden rise in humidity in the flooded pantry, the toast the king received on this day was already dotted with mold. The king wasn't fussy, though. He just ate around the green spots. I'd say much of the Cripple King's political success could be attributed to that one underrated personality trait. He just wasn't fussy. The entire castle of Montego was in a state of disrepair. The stables were collapsing in on themselves. The library was infested with some kind of chihuahua-sized rodent that liked to bite. The king's private rooms were missing floorboards and had holes in the ceiling, 
The main hall was coated in the dung from bats who lived in the high naves of the hall, and the exterior walls of the castle were collapsing and falling away like the outer edges of a glacier calving into the sea. But this disrepair was a result of deliberate action. Rather than use valuable Onxian taxes on repairs for his own home, the Cripple King allocated all of that revenue to infrastructure projects for the people of his kingdom. Currently, a great cross-kingdom highway was being constructed all on Onxian taxpayer dime. The project would not only connect the kingdom from east to west, but provide thousands of peasants with good jobs. So what if the baker's pantry was flooded and the king's horses kept escaping the stables? Like I said, the cripple king wasn't fussy. Once the king had his fill of buttery carbohydrates, he leaned back in his dining chair and massaged the dangling phalanges that hung like rotten vegetation from his bloated cheeks. These phalanges were very sore in the mornings, but by afternoon they were back to their perky selves. As he massaged these peculiar facial growths, the king stared blankly at the walking path hewn into the stone floor of the chamber. A clever device crafted by the servants of Castle Montego, this walking path was made as a way for servants to wait on the Cripple King without ever having to lift their heads. This way, the servants could keep their eyes locked on the floor while serving their sovereign and never have to risk catching a glimpse of the king's ugly mug. The walking path would guide them to and from the dining table like markings on an airport runway. King Montego simply thought his servants liked to keep their heads bowed as a sign of deference and humility, but in actual fact it was to keep their eyes averted from the Lovecraftian horror that was his face. The king finished massaging his face and rubbed his palms against his morning robes, wiping off the mucus excreted by his dangling phalanges. He leaned back in his seat and sighed. Alone in that cavernous dining hall, he looked like anything but a king. He looked like a little action figure, like a toy thing, like a doll dropped into an unproportional doll's house. Looking up at the dark walls that stretched to heights the torchlight couldn't reach, the Cripple King felt small. He felt about as microscopic and repugnant as some infectious bacteria. Things weren't so peachy here at Castle Montego, and they were about to get a whole lot worse. The old wooden doors to the dining chamber, which hung on hinges so oxidized they looked like red rock sediment, suddenly shrieked open, bringing a burst of light and refreshed air into the chamber. A figure, shrouded in dark robes, hobbled through the doors at the far end of the hall, moving with some anxious speed. His leather sandals slapped against the stone floors, launching a chain reaction of percussive echoes across the chamber. The king straightened up in his chair and watched as this man ran towards him. He was not very agile, the robed runner, and he kind of waddled from side to side as he ran, as if hidden under his robes were actually three individual kids stacked up on each other's shoulders, you know, like something you'd see in an old cartoon. Once the runner reached the halfway point, between the entrance and the place where the king dined, he paused to reconnoiter himself. He put his hands on his knees, took a few deep breaths, readjusted his robes, tightened his sandals by a few degrees, and then took off running towards the king again. Montego called out to this robed man, 
Hey, what's going on, dude? You, you, you don't need to run. At this admonishment, the runner actually ratcheted up his speed, yanking his robes up above his pale ankles and jumping into a sprint. As the robed man came closer to the candelabras lighting the dining table, the Cripple King began to make out his old face and beard. This was the Cripple King's most trusted advisor and confidant, Balthazar the Blind, the only man in the kingdom who could look the king directly in the eyes. I'm sure, judging by his title, you could guess why. Balthazar's eyes were about as useful as an echolocation system in interstellar space. They couldn't identify a damn thing, making him the perfect advisor for someone with a face that could drive a man to insanity. Balthazar the Blind was really the closest thing the Cripple King had to a friend, even if their friendship was along the same lines of a corrections officer and an inmate, never really blossoming into anything beyond terse niceties. The learned advisor came to a stuttering stop before the king, his bald head glistening with sweat and his milky eyes flickering in the candlelight. The king looked into his old advisor's eyes and saw fear. What, what is it, Balthazar? The king asked. Balthazar, still out of breath, bent over and dry heaved, his chin and head thrusting with every empty regurgitation like a baby bird snapping for some food. The sound of his heaves was raspy and terrible, like twenty-grit sandpaper being scraped against a wet sponge. Hey, are you, are, are, you, are you good, man? The king asked Balthazar, reaching his gnarled hand out to pat his advisor on the back. Balthazar, using the dining table for balance, straightened himself up and wiped some slobber from off his red face. His breathing was returning to normal. Your, 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 royal, your, your, your royal highness. Balthazar said, struggling to find the words. There has been an, an, an incident. The king shifted his crown and frowned. The barnacles on his chin quivered. What, what do you mean there has been an incident? Well, said the advisor. I, I, I mean just that. There has been a terrible incident, my king. Whoa, 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 wait, wait, hold on, said the king, throwing his hands up in defense. First you said there was an incident, and now you say there was a terrible incident. Yes, yes, very, very terrible. Well, how terrible? Well, pre pretty terrible. But, but, like, how terrible? Very, very terrible, my king. Like, like on a scale, can you give me a scale? What, what kind of scale? Asked the advisor. Like, like, one not being too good, and ten being, like, uh, apocalyptic. Hmm. The advisor thought for a moment. I'd, I'd say right around 9.3. The king nodded. That's, that's not great. No, no, it isn't, said the advisor. Okay, said the king, trying to draw out an explanation. Can you give me the details of this incident? Yes, yes, my king, said the advisor, raising his face to the heavens as if in silent prayer. He closed his faulty eyes and bit his lower lip. Well, well, your royal highness, uh, uh, a wyvern has been spotted in the Eastland, and it's beginning to terrorize villages, killing peasants and burning homes to the ground. 
What, what the hell is a wyvern? asked the king. The advisor shot the king a quizzical, half-deriding look, like a parent disappointed in a child's lack of knowledge. A wyvern is a winged creature, reptilian in nature, with a long tail, sharp teeth, and, although rare, fire-breathing capabilities. So, so like a dragon, then, the king asked. Did I say a dragon? No, it is, it is not a dragon, it is a wyvern. It, it sounds a lot like a dragon. A dragon is a four-legged creature, my king. A wyvern is, is bipedal. Re- remind me what bipedal means? Two-legged. Sure, said the king, nodding and understanding. So now, w- w- where did this dragon come from? Well, your royal highness, this wyvern is said to have been locked up in a cave in the hills of Eastland for a few thousand years, until just a couple days ago when, when, when some kids pried open the doors stopping the cave. Kids? Kids? Kids did this? Asked the king. Wait, were they, were they kids or were they like children? Oh, I, I hardly see the difference, my king. Well, there, there is a definite difference. Kids could be anywhere from the ages of 5 to 35 years old. I've known some extremely old men, men older than even yourself, who were known to call 38-year-olds kids. No, now children, children are really confined to the ages of about 4 years old to 12 or 13 years old. Even 13 is kind of pushing the envelope. A 13-year-old is more of a pubescent or a youth or a, or a teenager than a child. So now, were, were they kids or were they children? Well, said the advisor. I guess according to that logic, they were, they were children, not over the age of 9 or 10. Okay, so you're saying these kids, I, I mean children, just happened upon a cave that had been boarded up for centuries with a dragon inside it, and they just pried the damn thing open? More, more or less, yes, said the advisor, pulling on his long beard. Okay, cool, said the king with a sarcastic nod of his head. So how is this cave secured? Oh, it was boarded with fine panels of hard maple and an old padlock smithied by a great blacksmith of old times. Well, it couldn't have been that great if these kids, children, just knocked the thing open. Weathering, my king, said the advisor. We must think of the power nature had over that poor padlock, what with erosion and rust and weathering and all. Well, why didn't we have guards keeping watch over that place? And, and why is this the first time I'm hearing of this cave with a dragon inside? Um, in all honesty, mumbled the advisor, no, no, no one really knew of this place. It, it was tucked away in the, in the high mountains of Eastland. You know what it's like there, mostly filled with hillbillies and the like. It, it was a thing lost to time. The king nodded and twiddled with the barnacles on his chin. They had a tendency to get inflamed when the cripple king was stressed. He could feel them beginning to throb. So, how, how big is this dragon? The king asked, keeping his eyes locked on some unspecified point in the distance. 
Wyverns vary in size, my king, but I'd say it could be anywhere between the size of an ox cart and the size of the Castle Abbey. The, the Castle Abbey? asked the king, flashing his attention straight to Balthazar. The, the Castle Abbey is, is nearly 300 feet tall. I am aware of the dimensions of the Abbey, replied the advisor. Wyverns continue to grow over their lifetime. Well, how long is their lifetime? Uh, they're immortal. E excuse me? They don't die. I know what immortal means, said the king, his crown jiggling on his bulbous head. So, so how do we kill it? Mm, I'm not sure, said the advisor. Most likely with some type of magic. Something involving staffs and potions and scrolls of parchment. And, and you said it's terrorizing Eastland as we speak. Mm, yes, your royal highness, raising entire villages to the ground. Some estimates place the death toll in the thousands already. Well, at least it's Eastland, right? said the king. That whole place is kind of a, a shithole. Balthazar nodded in agreement. Who's in, uh, who's in control over there? asked the king. Baron Chadwick has the largest fief in the area. And how does Chadwick feel about us? asked the king. Does he like us? Mm, last winter festival, he said he wanted to watch you drown in your own fecal matter. Do you remember? The king nodded slowly. Ah, uh, yes, I do remember. So he's one of the middle ground types. He's very diplomatic, that one. You never know what he's thinking. How is he uh, solving the problem? He isn't, said the advisor in a matter-of-fact tone. Half of his garrisons are deployed in the Southlands as we speak, fighting for oil reserves. The wyvern is unchecked. My king, I think we may have to dispatch our armies. I think you may have to lead them into glorious battle against this monster. Do we, uh, do we have armies? asked the king. There are plenty of men still loyal to the crown, replied Balthazar. Well, I understand that, said the king, but, like, do we have soldiers with uniforms and swords and, and generals and all that? I, I, I don't think we do. Mm, you are correct, my king, said Balthazar. We will have to do some recruiting and training. No, said the king. We'll have to do more than recruiting. We'll have to build an army and fight a war simultaneously. Not a war, my king. A wyvern. I, I thought you said it could only be killed by magic. What's an army going to do, anyway? Mm, slow it down, perhaps, said Balthazar, shrugging. Uh, said the king, closing his eyes and pinching the bridge of his bent nose. I understand your despair, my king, but we really must get moving. Many lives are at stake. The cripple king dropped his gooey face into his palms and made a kind of growling-like noise. It sounded visceral and childish. Oh, and things were going pretty well, too said the king, shaking his head in his hands. Yes, your royal highness, Onks was prospering.
The Cripple King sighed, cleared his throat, and lifted his head. Yeah, okay, said the king, popping one of his lesions and wiping the resulting pus onto his robes. Let's, uh, let's sally forth then, or, or whatever, let's go. The Cripple King stood up out of his dining chair and followed his teetering advisor out of the dark dining hall. As the Cripple King left the dining chamber, he thought he heard, far off in the distance, the sound of screaming. Coming from so far away, the scream sounded sweet, melodic, peaceful. Thank you for listening. That was episode 19 of the podcast entitled The Cripple King. This episode was written, edited, produced, and narrated by myself, with the music being by Kevin McLeod. Thank you all again for listening.